Okay, it says it's live. Okay. You associated with word and work, row, worship, arms and closed hands. Your hands made me inform me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. May your unfailing love be my comfort. Let your passion come to me. The law is my delight. Arrogance is put to shame for wrongdoing. Wronging me without cause, but I will mandate meditate on your precepts. Those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes, may my heart be blameless towards your decrees. Okay, now I said this on last Sunday twice. I'm going to say it now, and then everybody needs to pay attention. Daylight savings time. We're going to spring forward Saturday night at 2 o'clock. Now, what I recommend is you don't get up at 2 o'clock and spring forward, that you spring forward and then go to bed. But either way, spring forward and you will be on time for church wherever you attend on Sunday. If you don't, you're going to lose an hour and you're going to be super late, late, super late. You're not just going to be late. You're going to be, they're going to be taking the Lord's Supper while you are coming to church. So make sure that you spring forward on Saturday before you go to bed. And then uh, as long as you've done that, you'll be in good shape. And let's see what else. Um, uh, I had a couple more. I've got the list, which I have not been really faithful to pray for because it got put under some other things. Uh, the list for people that are unsaved, and I was asked this week to add in some people, Ami and Daphne, Ronnie and Gilly, all in uh, Israel, and then Dominique, uh, my friend's brother, and so uh, they've asked for uh, us to pray for them for salvation, along with all the other names that we have on this list, and so we shall do that, and um, I guess we'll do that first, and then we'll read a couple things. Heavenly Father, we certainly uh, come to you in prayer, asking for your guidance in this life of ours and our walk and in our uh, uh, interactions with you and with others. And we certainly lift up all the people on this list that do not know Jesus, that uh, some will hopefully very soon be uh, coming to you because you've intervened in their lives in some way that makes them want to seek you out and turn their hearts to you. And we know that you can do that. And we would pray that within no time at all, all of them will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. The list is getting long and we would just... uh, ask that you would uh, respond according to your wisdom. And Lord, we have a class today. We would ask that you would give us wisdom in your word and that uh, what is said would be proper and right. And if there's something that is not correct, that you would open our hearts and minds to it so that we would be able to uh, correct those deficiencies and get onto the straight path of doctrine. But we leave that in your hands, asking it in advance so that we do not in any way mishandle your word. And Lord, we uh, also would like to pray for um, uh, Ron and Shannon, who are probably traveling back to Florida this week. I believe that it's this week that they're coming back, and so we'd ask for safe travels for them on their way into uh, Sarasota, or actually to where they live, but they attend here in Sarasota. And Lord, uh, we just pray for anybody that's sick, not well, that's uh, distressed in finances or distressed in 
their work or whatever else is hindering them to have a right and uh, happy relationship with you, that you would be with them and help them through those times. And we lift these things up to you, knowing that you can do far more than we would ask. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. And I read this on Sunday, but I'm sure there are people that watch the uh, the uh, Bible studies that don't watch the update. So this will be a little repetition for some of you. But I thought it was a great idea. And we know that not everybody is geared to just sitting down and reading the Bible. But, you know, it's my heart that everybody would pick up their Bible and read it every single day. If they would do that, I know that their lives would be far better off. <clears throat> she said, um, this is from Gabriella. About four years ago, the Lord convicted me. I've never read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And it's one thing to read your Bible, pick it up and peck around through it. And uh, it's another thing to read it from the beginning to end and to read it again and again and again so that you can get a grasp of what is going on in the Word. Uh, she said, I've tried many times but never went beyond the book of Numbers. And that's a problem that I hear from a lot of people. Some people get to Leviticus. Usually they get through that thinking, well, the next book will be better. They get the numbers and then they just quit. And uh, it's because there's so many numbers and most people are not geared to remembering 4,000 names in a row and a bunch of numbers that don't seem to have any relevance to anything. Uh, but as you go through the Bible and you've read it 10 times, those numbers actually start becoming relevant. She said, uh, then I started reading Psalms or the New Testament. So I told people from the Bible study if they wanted to join me on a group and we would read it together. We made a group on WhatsApp and started reading five chapters a day. One person would record and upload their audios, and the rest would listen to them and read along when they have time during that day. And the next person the next day, and after each one read, the first person started again. We would also make comments or questions, and we all discuss it. It took us about seven months. Now, that's actually very quick if you think about it, when you've got people that are doing things individually, but as a group, okay? Seven months is actually really good timing, uh, but we did it. And then we read it again, but now in the order of the Hebrew Bible. Now, just so you know what she's saying, there's the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament follows a different pattern than our Old Testament. We go from Genesis to Malachi. They go from Genesis to um, uh, Second Chronicles. And then some of the books are like Kings and Chronicles are single books instead of uh, broken up books. Samuel as well. They're single books. So they have a different structure in the Hebrew Bible. And there is a reason why the Bible is the way it is in the Christian canon, is because it's the way that God wanted it. For the Jews, they have not understand that Christ is the Messiah. So seeing it in the, the order of the Christian canon wouldn't make any sense to them. But once they know who Messiah is, then it makes all the sense in the world, because the patterns come out that point to him. But we'll go into that some other time. Um, so they went through the Hebrew Bible. It was an experience that changed our lives. After the second time, I encouraged everyone to open their own groups. So now you've got, what was it, seven people, I think she said, or something, a, a certain number of people. They all start their own group. So now you've got more people doing this, okay? Um, uh, and to invite more people. Not everyone did, but in conclusion, now there have been about 25 groups of about 10 to 15 people each. There's a multiplication in this, and if they continue to do that, it will just continue to grow exponentially. I also continued, and I am on my seventh group. And as you said, each time inviting new people, Christians and non-Christians, and still sometimes I read and I say to myself, 
I don't remember this. I wanted to share this with you because I've seen the blessing. This has been especially for people who are not very disciplined or get discouraged easily. It's a challenge, but so worth it. I'm sure you read your Bible, but hopefully our experience could be useful for people in your congregation or people that you know. So that's a recommendation. It's a very good one. I would hope that you would, uh, if you're struggling with Bible reading, to do it with other people. Doing anything as a group will always make things easier. And accountability, that's right. And you won't be so quick to uh, just walk away from what you're doing. And uh, it's just a great idea. So I recommend that. When I read it, I thought I'd like the, the uh, Bible study people that listen to maybe consider that because they may not be reading their own Bible. And this is the only Bible they get is from me. And, you know, that's not really a healthy way to do things because I could be wrong. And, you know, you listen to other people and they certainly will be wrong in some areas, depending on who you're listening to. And then if you're just listening to that one person, you could be getting put down into a wrong path with theology. So the more you get out, the more you read the Bible, you, the less you are likely to be misled by somebody. I had an email today about that from somebody. And uh, actually all week long, I've been getting emails about contradictions in the Bible and things like that. But uh, uh, somebody just a little while ago said that, you know, there's doctrinal issues that are coming up. And if you don't know your Bible, you have no idea if what they are saying is correct or not. But when you read your Bible, you will know at least that there's something wrong. So please do that. Please consider that. Um, let's see. Yeah, we'll go ahead and read this day in Christian history. Today is the 13th of March. We'll read that and then we'll get right into the uh, Bible class. Let's see here. Oh, that's up to Sergio. You might tell him. I don't know if he needs to know that. Anyway, uh, March 11th, he was cast down, but not in despair. The monitor is not on. Um, William Carey, often called the founder of modern missions, dedicated his life to spreading the gospel in India. Serving as a missionary there from 1793 until his death in 1834, he never took a furlough. That was 1793 to 1834, so 34 plus 7 is uh, 41 years. Although he had a little formal education, Carey was a gifted linguist who learned dozens of languages and dialects. His goal was to translate scripture into as many Indian languages and dialects as possible. In order to meet this goal, Carey supervised the creation of India's first printing press. He established a large print shop in the city of Sarampur, where he did his Bible translation. The building was 200 by 50 feet, and 20 translators worked there, in addition to typesetters, compositors, pressmen, binders, and other writers. On March 11th of 1812, Carey was teaching in Calcutta. While he was gone, a fire started in the printing room. His associate, Will, William Ward, smelled smoke and called for help. Despite many hours of exhaustive efforts to fight the fire, the building burned to the ground. Just five pieces of equipment were saved. Carey's entire library has his completed Sanskrit dictionary, part of his Bengal dictionary, two grammar books, and ten translations of the Bible were lost. Gone also were the typesets for printing 14 different languages. Vast quantities of English paper, priceless dictionaries, deeds, and accountant books were all gone. Another missionary interrupted Carey while he was teaching a class in Calcutta to inform him of the stunning and tragic events of the day before. When Carey returned to Singapore, and surveyed the scene, he wept and said, In one short evening the labor of years are consumed. How unsearchable are the ways of God. I had lately brought some things to the uttermost perfection of which they seemed capable, 
and contemplated the missionary establishment with, the per, with perhaps too much self-congratulations. The Lord has laid me low that I may look more simply to him. Although he was heartbroken, <clears throat> he did not take much time to mourn. With great resiliency, Carey wrote, the loss is heavy, but as traveling a road, the second time is usually done with greater ease than the first, so I trust the work will lose nothing of real value. We are not discouraged. Indeed, the work has already begun again in every language. We are cast down, but not in despair. Carey resolved to trust God that from the embers would come up a better press and more scholarly translations. Within a few months, Carey had set up shop in a little warehouse. Little did Carey know that the fire would bring him and his work to the attention of people all over Europe and America, as well as in India. In just 50 days, in England and Scotland alone, about 10,000 pounds were raised for rebuilding Carey's publishing enterprise. So much money was coming in that Andrew Fuller, Carey's friend and a leader of his mission in England, told his committee when he returned from a fundraising trip, we must stop the contributions. Many volunteers came to India to help as well. By 1832, Carey's rebuilt and expanding printing operation had published complete Bibles or portions of the Bible in 44 languages and dialects. And they say resiliency was William Carey's trademark throughout his life. In spite of difficulty and loss, he never despaired. He once wrote, there are grave difficulties on every hand and more are looming ahead. Therefore, we must go forward. Are there trials in your life that tempt you to despair? What can you learn from Carey's example of resiliency? And they quote 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed and broken. We are perplexed, but we don't give up and quit. We are hunted down, but God never abandons us. We get knocked down, but we get up again and keep going. Sounds like Paul when he was stoned outside of the city and he just got up and went back in the city. So there's a point where you just have to brush yourself off and say, I'm not going to let this little thing get me down. And um, that's what happened. Uh, what's the guy that wrote of Mice and Men? Um, uh, who wrote? What's that? Ah, anyway, he wrote of Mice and Men. Um, I, I'll remember his name in the middle of the class. Anyway, uh, he wrote that. That was his greatest novel ever. And uh, his dog ate it. It's a true story. His dog ate it. And he had to start all over again. And that's what made it so great is because he, the second time, was already familiar with what he was writing. He added into it and it became Steinbeck. Steinbeck. Thank you. Um, uh, so I'm not going to have to remember it during the middle of the class because <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, Steinbeck. I love yeah, yeah, yeah. Dogs. Of men and dogs. Yeah, absolutely. That's true story. So he, uh, he wrote that book and they got, he got eaten by his dog. So, you know, good dog. I mean, if it turned out to be the greatest novel of his life, then there you go. And the same thing with him. He thought there might be despair, but he realized that God was humbling him and he worked it out so that it became an even greater venture than it was at the beginning. So we have to look at the, the hopeful side of things, even when it doesn't seem that uh, that's the way it is at the moment. You know, I've lost my computer twice in the past year, and that is a lot to get over. It's very stressful for Sergio more than me, I'm sure. But, uh, uh, you know, in the end, everything was recovered and the things that weren't, we have to do without and we'll find something else to fill the place of it. So, but in the process of things like that happening, there's a lot to get done. And so that's what makes us old, I think, is we just have problems in life and they just wear us down eventually. Anyway. Steady, steady. Yeah, steady wins the prize. That's I'm right. I'm surprised you didn't uh, 
comment on Moses Tabernacle when you said they had to stop giving. Oh, yeah, Moses Tabernacle. I mean, yeah, exactly. The people have given too much and more. He says, restrain them. So uh, they restrain the people. But, yeah, there's a point where, uh, uh, you know, gifts come in and, you know, you just got to do something. Hey, hold on, guys. We got too much. And uh, and we just, uh, it was good of the people to give like that. And the tabernacle got built. And, uh, uh, well, there you go. Okay, well, you might as well start at verse 1 and just go down through verse 1-4, which is our first verse today. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and the saints, and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you, God, our Father, and Lord Christ. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, holy and blameless in sight, in love. Okay. Um, you know, somebody just emailed me this week about predestination. I think it was yesterday. I, you know, I get emails and I forget my responses and stuff, but it's exactly what we're talking about right here. And, uh, you know, does, uh, does predestination negate free will? Maybe it was you with your, the thing you sent me, was it? Yeah. He sent me this long thing on faith. It was faith, wasn't it? Oh, well, predestination. That, that was a separate one. Okay, faith was a separate one. See, all this gets jumbled in there, but I did respond to the faith one because there were some, they were not right in their commentaries. They weren't because uh, faith, the word is pistis in Greek, okay? And uh, he sent a commentary with all of help studies and that came. Did you notice I told you, look at help studies. They just plagiarized it and they didn't give him credit on it either. But they had a bunch of other stuff, but they had help word studies in there. And well, they do call it help. Okay, they did cite that? Okay, good, because it was it was just right down the line, right from helps along with other things that they added in. And it was a good commentary, but one of the problems with um, uh, their thing is that they, they one person cited the right verse, but nobody, uh, he cited the verse number, but not the verse itself, okay, speaking about faith. And they gave all these commentaries on faith, and they were away from what faith means, because the Bible determines what faith means. Where is the verse? Faith is, yeah, it's the beginning of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Let's, let's read that really quickly, just so that people don't think that I'm going to stop without finishing a thought. That's right, okay? I'm not going to try to quote it and misquote it here, though, but that's exactly right. So, But the problem is that they gave all these analysis of it, and they, they did not correspond their analysis to the word. And if the word gives a definition of something, that is its definition. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. The word is a noun, and they use it as a noun here in its explanation. That's all we need to know, but if you want to further define, if you want to further talk about, that's fine, but you do not turn it into a verb. And you don't do other things with it, which they did. They they started inserting things which were incorrect. And so I sent in my thoughts on it, which I wish I had saved it. If you still have it, if you deleted my email, great. If not, send it back to me because I'd like... It's gone. It's gone. Okay. Go anyway. Uh, yeah, maybe I have it in my trash. I'll try to remember. I'll go home and I'll forget that I, I uh, have that. Trash. Well, I will forget. That's what I'm saying. I will forget to go into my trash. But that's okay. I... I, uh, I uh, 
it, you know, anyway, it's what you have to be careful with when you analyze something. If the Bible has already explained it some way, that is what we are to go by. That is it, okay? The scripture must interpret Scripture, and anything we analyze beyond that is to be in accord with that. But it was, uh, uh, okay, we'll go on. Uh, one four commentary. Um, it, yours was very close to mine, but just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And then that was what you said about predestination. Um, I better hit that door. That's going to bing all night long. The words here can be viewed in several ways. One view negates the thought of free will in man. Okay, that would be the Calvinist predestination. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, more in the next verse, but I'm not going to try to get ahead of myself here. As if God has made a decision to choose specific individuals regardless of whether they do anything or not. It wasn't just you. Somebody actually emailed me a question with that. Okay, so I, it was you, but there was somebody else that asked a specific question about predestination. So um, uh, I'll read it again just so you know what I'm thinking about. Blessed, I'm sorry, just as he chose us in him, meaning in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Okay, so um, it says that he chose us in him. Does that mean that God made the decision and we have no choice in it? Or how does that work out? And we're going to talk about that as we go through this. So I don't want to get ahead of myself, but uh, we'll continue on. Um, it's, uh, as I said, it's a made, God made a decision to choose specific individuals regardless of whether they do anything or not. This is what is known as the monergistic view. It's a big word. It's very simple. Moner, uh, mono is single, er is work, and then the istic would be the, like the doctrine of it. So monergism would be the work of one, okay? Mono, er, and then chism, okay? The work of one. Monergistic view, which basically looks at all things as directed by God to an ultimate end in such a way that there is no need to receive Jesus. God directed everything, and so we don't need to receive Jesus. Now, they will argue, the people that will argue their view, their monergistic view, will say, of course you need to receive Jesus. The Bible says that, but God regenerates you in order to believe, you then believe, and then you are saved, okay? Why would that, you need to go through that? Why would you need to go through that? It is convoluted, it is erroneous, and it is, it is incorrect. That, we'll just leave it at that. Um, there's no need to evangelize others. Why would we send it? We're just read about William Carey. Why would he go out there and do that? Why bother with William Carey? If God's, if his will and his word cannot be worded, if that is true, and God chose Ramasamy over in India to be saved, then we don't need William Carey to go over and publish Bibles because Ramasamy is going to somehow find out about Jesus apart from William Carey. That is the idea here. Now, they'll deny that. They will deny that. Monergism will deny that, but that is the result of monergistic thinking. I want you to know that. I don't care what they say. It's what their doctrine says that is it, you know, being evaluated, not what they say about their doctrine. If their doctrine says that it is monergism and that, that God sovereignly chooses them apart from their free will, then God's will cannot be thwarted and they will be saved. They, meaning whoever it is in the world, that God predestined from before the creation of the world. These things they add on are lies they tell themselves. That's right. To make it seem like... That's right, because I was trained by this person. This person says this. 
I know that's not right. And so they invent their own little lies to justify, I'm going to stand by this Calvinistic, this monergistic view of salvation, because that's what I was told. I trust that person, and therefore I'm going to believe it. And now I'm going to defend that, which has nothing to do with the doctrine itself, which is a faulted, a perverse doctrine. Okay, so there is no need to evangelize others. There is no need to anticipate that the things we do will affect our eternal destiny in any way. God saves apart from our free will. We are saved. There is the perseverance of the saints, all done by God. We don't have any part in anything. Let's just go live our life and not worry about God because he's gotten it all taken care of for us. Okay, that's the idea. Once again, their words about their doctrine will not match their words concerning the doctrine itself because they cannot unless the person just is so sold out on something that he can't even get beyond himself. But we'll leave that. Okay, it is basically God's plan being executed by automatons. You are an automaton. You have no choice in where you're going, what you're doing in regard to salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. When I say monergism is what they're talking about, they will never say that God has set you into your path and on your feet in a monergistic way concerning sin. They would never say that. They wouldn't say, oh no, God has predestined everything and therefore your sin was a part of God's plan. They would not say that. So they're playing two sides of the same coin. They're saying, okay, you have free will in sin. You have free will to do this and you have free will to do that, but you have no free will in your relationship with God, in your salvation, in your believing in Jesus, etc. It, it is perverse, but we'll go on. The other view is synergistic. Okay, sin would mean uh, together, like uh, think of S-U-N instead of S-Y-N. Okay, so you've got, and then er again, working. So working together in the doctrine of synergism. Okay, and then you put it into the, uh, what is it? A synergistic would be an adverb, I guess, whatever. The other is the synergistic view. Maybe that's an adjective, uh, which says that the free will of man is included in God's purposes of election. In other words, God gave us free will. That's included. And when God looked down from the very moment that he was about to create everything, and he said, someday there's going to be a guy named uh, Dr. Bridges, and Dr. Bridges is going to have free will, and he's going to hear the gospel, and he's going to respond. That doesn't negate God's, that doesn't, your, God's knowledge of that does not negate your free will in any way, shape, or form. But that is what people will say about synergism. They'll say, oh, well, if God already knows what you're going to choose, then you have no choice in the matter. That is nonsense. God knows everything. He also knows the sins you're going to commit, but he didn't cause those either. It is a perverse system. I think I've said that three times now, but it is because it's not thinking the issue through clearly. All right. Uh, it, read it again. The other view is a synergistic working together view, which says that free will of man is included in God's purposes of election. That man is accountable for the actions and decisions he makes, both good and bad, high and low and whatever else. Um I don't know what that guy's doing out there. They're yelling and stuff. Anyway, um, and that receiving Christ is an active part of the redemptive process. The words of Charles Ellicott help define which view is being correct, or I'm sorry, which view is correct. Charles Ellicott says, and this was an Anglican minister, okay, the eternal election of God is inseparably connected with the blessing of the Spirit. 
This passage stands alone in St. Paul's epistles in its use of this word, chosen, in connection with God's eternal purpose, before the foundation of the world, a phrase only applied elsewhere to the eternal communion of the Son with the Father. That's John 17, verse 24. And to the foreordaining of his sacrifice in the divine councils, which is, um, where is that? Yes, 1 Peter 1, verse 20. The word chosen itself is used by our Lord of his choice of the apostles. That's John 6, 70, John 13, 18, and John 15, 16 through 19. But in one case with the significant addition, one of you is a devil, okay? Showing that the election was not final. It is similarly used in the Acts, Acts 1-2, Acts 1-24, Acts 6-5, Acts 15-7, Acts 15-22, Acts 15-25, of his choice or the choice of the apostles, and once, Acts 13-7, of the national election of Israel. In 1 Corinthians 1-27-28, this is all uh, uh, Charles Ellicott's words here, the only other place where it is used by St. Paul and in James 2, verse 5, it refers to the choice of men by God's calling in this world. Clearly, in all these cases, it is applied to the election of men to privilege by an act of God's mercy here. In this passage, on the contrary, the whole reference is to the election in Christ by the foreknowledge of God, of those who should hereafter be made his members. From this examination of scriptural usage, it is clear that, this is his words, the visible election to privilege is constantly and invariably urged upon men. The election in God's eternal counsels only dwelt upon passages like which, like this, or Romans 9 and 11, have to ascend in thought to the fountainhead of all being in God's mysterious will. It will be observed that even here it clearly refers to all members of the church without distinction. Okay, I, it's a lot of words. You'll have to go back and watch it or read it. You can get his commentary and read it and think about it, and that'll help you through with that. But what he is saying is that free will is involved in this particular uh, thing. The person that emailed me, this just came to mind. They said, you know, we were talking about predestination and election, and um, uh, I... I quoted this, I quoted something else, and I said, you know, in Romans, it says, those he called, he also justified, and he's, um, anyway, uh, when God calls, what does that mean? Well, if God calls, what does that mean? Well, he's, he's gotten your attention. He's calling. You have to respond. Go look at the word call that is used there elsewhere in the Bible, and that's what it says. God called. If God calls, it means that you have a choice in the call. It's not saying that the word call there is not being used in the sense that God Command. chose or commanded. That's right. God called. And those he called, he also justified. Okay? When you call, you respond. Okay? That's how it works. Jesus called this person. Jesus called that person. He could have turned around and walked away. He called him to him. Okay? So Paul. he called Paul. And Paul said, I was not disobedient to the voice. Okay, maybe it wasn't voice, maybe it was the call, whatever he said. But Paul could have been disobedience to the call that he was given on the road to Damascus. He could have. He would have been a fool to do so. He just saw the risen Lord, but and he's blind in the process, 
but he could have done it. He was not disobedient to the call. Okay, from this study, we see that the meaning of God's predestination or choosing us, which will be specifically mentioned in verse 5, having predestined, okay, from this study, we see that the meaning of God's predestination or choosing us, as Paul says, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, speaks of an overall plan for the redemption of man not the individual details of the plan. Everybody got that? God predestined, he ordained us in Christ before the, the foundation of the world. It's a plan. It's not saying he did this for you and you and you and you and you, and you have no choice in the matter. This is a plan that God made. He called us in Christ. And then what do we do? We hear the message of Christ because, uh, what was his name, William Carey? William Carey went to India. He told these people the message. And what did they do? They either responded or they didn't. But they would not have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ apart from that. Because if they could have, Jesus would not have said in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, you know, and baptizing the name of the Father. He wouldn't have said that. He would have said, listen, we're building a church now. It is a church that will be solely at God's will. He is going to save everybody. And all you need to do is teach them about Calvinistic doctrine after it happens because God's done everything. They don't, you know, he didn't say that at all. He said, you guys have a job to do. And if you don't do this job, there are people that are not going to be saved. Okay. I just, I'm almost angry at the thought of people out there saying that I'm the elect of God. That is the most arrogant thing in the world to say, I didn't have any choice in it, but God chose me, and I know that. Well, yeah, well that's, you know, that's the point I make in the doctrine sermons, is in the doctrine sermons, if there is the spirit of Christ, and there's also the spirit of Antichrist, it proves that you have free will, because there are people that have followed wrong doctrine, and then when they get saved, they realize, oh, I'm saved now. Did God purposefully send them down the wrong path? Absolutely not. God didn't do that. That was their choice to take the Bible and misuse it. God didn't give them a bad Bible. He gave them the same Bible that they're looking at now. Somebody misled them down the wrong path with it, and they chose to accept it. I am convinced that most people that hang on to that, despite most people that hang on to that, despite what the Bible's telling, is because someone they love. That's right. Has said, "I refuse to believe in Christ." Or they were saved when they were young, and they walked away from Christ. And they said, it's one or the other. And I've seen the same thing. That It happens all the time. You got somebody that refuses to believe in Christ and they say, well, I... Or they've already died. Yeah, that's right. They want that assurance. They want that assurance. All of these arguments come up and they are invalid arguments. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God. It has everything to do with his word and what he has presented to us. And then we have a decision to make. And people don't want to face that. So, okay, we'll go on. Um, uh, In this we see, I'll I'll read the last sentence again. This doesn't mean he doesn't know what choices we will make, but it allows for free will from a human perspective. In this we see the details of that overall plan would come by the individual actions of man within the larger concept of choosing the elect. In the plan are set parameters which included that we should be holy and without blame before him. That's Paul's words. We should be holy and without blame before him. These words show us the object of the overall plan of divine election, to be holy in God. They imply a synergistic, working together cooperation between the Redeemer 
and the redeemed. Because of the fall, man is inherently unholy and unrighteous. Does anybody disagree with that? No, okay. However, in coming to Christ, man is justified before God. From that point, we are to strive towards holiness so that we may be presented to God in holiness. Let me take you to Romans chapter 12 really quickly, and we'll read something from there. Romans, Acts, Luke, John, come on, Charlie. Romans, okay, Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I'll go down, go on. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay, I just read that. He's writing to save people. Everybody understands that. He is writing to save believers, just as he does in his other epistles. He calls them brethren. What does it imply when he says that you should do this? It is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed. What does all that imply? It's a choice, okay? I, you know, uh, this is the second issue. This has nothing to do with predestination and salvation. Calvinism will say that is God's work solely, and then after that, you have to work out your salvation, etc. Okay, but if you have a choice and he says that you should do these things, it means that you might not do these things. And Paul never, ever in his epistles ever says, if you don't do these things, you will lose your salvation. He never does that. Peter never does that. John never does that. It is not to be found in Scripture. You have a choice once you're saved. You can follow along with the program. You can do what you're supposed to do, or you cannot do it. That is your choice. You will not lose your salvation. It is not to be found in Scripture unless the verse is pulled out of its context, which people will do that, obviously. You will not find that doctrine in Scripture. You will find the doctrine that if you don't do these things, you're going to get rewards and you're going to get lost. You're going to find in there that if you uh, don't do this, you're going to be cast over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, but your spirit will be saved on the day of Christ Jesus, and on and on and on. You will not find anywhere in the New Testament that if you don't do the things that he just recommended, which he says, I recommend you do these things. He doesn't order them. But he says, I beseech you, he's begging you, please do these things. This is your reasonable service. You're not going to find that if you don't do those things, you're going to lose your salvation. You might lose your joy. You might lose your life. You might, you know, uh, lose a lot of rewards. You will not lose your salvation. So that's another part of doctrine, which falls right into this exact same thing. Is that one, we have a synergistic model of salvation. God presents something, he offers it, you receive it. Okay, and then after that, God gives you the directives of how to work out your salvation, and you can accept it or you can reject it. But your salvation is covenanted by God, who will not lie. He will not withdraw his covenant faithfulness, even if you are unfaithful. Go read 2 Peter 1 9, and you'll see that. Where you can build it with. Uh... Yeah, 1 Corinthians 3. Yeah. What, we'll that, read that. that. Absolutely. We'll read that again. 1 Corinthians 3. I know we do this from time to time, but people need to remember this. It says there in verse 11, I think. Yes. I'll start in 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. There's a foundation, which is Christ. People are building on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. That's what Paul was just talking about in Romans 12, verse 1. Okay, and 2. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, here you go. Here's your reward, buddy. He will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, here it is. This is, you want eternal salvation? He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So he's going to be saved. It doesn't matter what you do with your salvation. You can piddle it away or you can build all day long on it with good, you know, uh, faithful deeds in Christ. Whatever you want to do, it is your choice. Paul says, this is what's going to happen when you choose one of those two avenues. That's it. He never says you're going to lose your salvation. He's even talking. What's he talking about? The foundation. I laid the foundation. It's what? It says right there. It's Christ. Okay. And then he says, if anyone builds on that foundation with something other than Christ, that's what he's implying right there. If it's not of Christ, then he's building something that isn't of Christ. He may have gone off down heresy highway. He may be building, uh, you know, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses doctrine, but that person will be saved. He's talking about the building of faith in a person. He's not talking about going out and doing stuff out in the world and, and you know, earning rewards by doing stuff like down in the projects. He's, that is included in it, but that is not what he's talking about. He's talking about building on the foundation. If the foundation is Christ and we're building on it, it's speaking about our doctrine, our life, what we are doing in Christ, okay? So if you go down the heresy highway after being saved, you are the one that will suffer. The foundation is Christ, and that is where you are supposed to be building, okay? So, so much for losing your salvation. Somebody emailed me about that today, and I gave him the doctrine sermons, and I said, here are some doctrine sermons we did, and there's 10 of them. I recommend you start with the first because they're in a logical order. We did that for a reason, and we went through each one. If you understand who the person of Jesus is in his humanity and his deity, then you will understand the doctrine of salvation much better. But if you just want to see the doctrine of salvation, here you go. Really nice person, by the way. I don't want to say any more than that because I don't have permission, but just a very pleasant email, which is always very nice to have. Okay, um, Romans 12, 1, and then he brought in uh, two, 1 Corinthians 3. It's also in 2 Corinthians 5, talking about rewards and losses, etc. Anyway, um, Albert Barnes pro provides the following concerning the responsibilities of the elect. He says, the tendency among people has always been to abuse the doctrine of predestination and election, to lead people to say that if all things are fixed, there is no need of effort. Exactly what Calvinism teaches. Whether they acknowledge that or not, as I said, is completely irrelevant. What they say to justify their stand on Calvinism does not mean that they are talking about the doctrine that they espouse. They're, they're trying to justify to you, because you know that it's wrong, why they're doing certain things. But the doctrine itself says, if you follow it logically to its end, you do not need to send anybody anywhere overseas. So much for sending Ligonier Ministry, that's R.C. Sproul's ministry, any money for missions work. There's no need for it because he's teaching you that you are saved apart from your free will. If that is true, every single person on this planet is saved apart from their free will, and you don't need to be a part of that process. Save your money for something else, okay? If you believe that that is untrue, 
find a church that has missions that send people overseas. I know lots of people you can give to. We've got Ray and uh, Jess Willett. We've got a girl over in Thailand who's not there right now. She's been schlubbing in America for a while. And we've got, uh, you know, other people uh, who, uh, Joel and Missy Davis, that uh, teach um, pilots, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, missionary pilots around the world. We've got people that really need to be supported. And if you have extra money, by all means, let me know and I'll give you their websites or their email addresses and you can uh, take care of them, okay? Because this is important. We are not Calvinists and we do not believe that people are just going to be saved because God saved them before the whole world was created. Okay, this is Albert Barnes continuing. To lead people to say that all, if all things are fixed, there is no need of effort, that God has an eternal plan, no matter how people live, they will be saved if he has elected them. That is standard Calvinistic doctrine and that all events they cannot, uh, I'm sorry, and that at all events they cannot change that plan. Nobody is saying that we can change God's plan. I don't know a person on either side of the issue that says that we can change God's plans. God's plans cannot be thwarted, but God's plans include the fact that we are a part of that plan. He knew that we would be a part of that plan. He knew that a person out in Missouri happened to have a little extra money, and he says, I want to support Joel and Missy Davis out in Washington and their pilot ministry. Okay, he knew that would happen, but that person still has to take the money out of his wallet and put it in an envelope and send it to Joel and, and Missy Davis. What? And decide, and decide to, do to do it. God isn't forcing him to pull that money out. Like, <laughs> no, no, it's not happening that way. Okay, go on with uh, Albert Barnes' uh, words. He says, um, I'll read that again. They will be saved if he has elected them, and that at all events they cannot change that plan. And they may as well enjoy life by indulgence in sin. Now, Calvinists would say, I dare not. I would never do that. But that is, I'm telling you, that is exactly, that, that is license. And people say, oh, free grace. You know, uh, what's his name? Zane Hodges, free grace. He, he promotes licentiousness because it's free grace and you don't have to do anything to earn it. It's exactly the opposite. He says that you are given grace apart from any merit at all. All you have to do is receive it. And if you are a wise person and you realize the depravity of the life that you have lived and God is giving you this gift, it's going to be the exact opposite. You are going to live for, I know because it happened to Charlie Garrett. I know that it happened to me that I was not living the life I should be, and I realized that God is gracious and he's merciful, and so I decided I'm going to go ahead and live for God. That's not license for sin. That's wanting to be away from sin, whereas Calvinism is exactly the opposite, and yet they say this is what we call projection. It's, liberals do it all the time. I'm doing this thing. I have this in my life, but I'm going to say that person is doing it, and they take it and they project what they are doing, the wickedness that they're doing, on the people of their opposition, okay? And I'm not saying that the Calvinists are wicked. I'm saying that the liberals are. But I'm saying the Calvinists do exactly the same thing. You're promoting license by believing in free grace. Absolutely not. It's the opposite. If you were saved and you were chosen apart from God's grace and you don't need to have any change in your life in order to be the Christian that you are because he just chose you in the state you're in, why would you bother even cleaning yourself up? Why would you bother? You know, but that that's projection. That's what they do. I, I think it's been a while since you mentioned uh, Norm Geisler's book. 
because it just does such a good job of explaining how the two synergistically work together. He wrote, he was one of the most prolific authors I've ever seen. He wrote so many. I can't remember well, which one it is. I can't but remember the name of it. I'll look for it. Look for it. And, and uh, I, I have some of his books. And he also has, uh, Geisler has the uh, Becca book. It's the Baker uh, Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics, Becca. And it's, what it is, is it's just a book that Geisler put together of all kinds of apologetic doctrines, all kinds of them. It's a big book. You may never refer to it, but you may say, I want to know what it says about this particular issue. That's a great one. I keep my mouse on top of it all day long I'm, because I, I, I have my, a drawer in my desk pulled out, okay, uh, where, because Jay gave me a, a chair to sit in. It's a reclining chair. And so I sit at the desk and I, I have to have the drawer pulled out. And of course, a drawer is five inches deep, so you can't have a mouse down there without breaking your arm. So I got books piled up in there. And the Becca book is the book where my mouse is, so it, so I can move my mouse and work on my thing. But the Becca book is a wonderful resource because it will talk about predestination. It'll talk about election. It'll talk about all of those things. And it'll talk about 10,000 other doctrines as well. So if you just want a good book on Christian Apologetics, the Becca book, Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics, go for it. And it will have that information in there. The thing about Geisler is he was, and most people don't know this, but he was in a competition with another guy. Every time one of them would put out a book, they, the other guy would sit down and write a book because they were like at 62 and then 63. So they're trying to outdo each other. This was a lifelong thing with them. So there's so much repetition in Geisler's books. And when you listen to him on the radio, he's dead now, but if you listen to any of his old things, he repeats himself like 500 times during any given thing, and he says the same thing he said before. But there's a reason why he did that. It's because he has core disciplines that he wanted you to know. And the more times you hear them, the more they're going to sink into you. And then the more times he repeats them, the more time they're, the more they're going to sink into you. That was a joke because I said the same thing differently. But that is Norman Geisler. So you're going to get a lot of repetition. The Becca book will be a good grounding of all of his doctrines. And then there's other stuff that uh, he, he wrote, lots of books. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, Albert, we're still in Albert Barnes' quote. Uh, let's see here. Um, go back. I'm going to read this a third time just so you know. And that all events... At all events, they cannot change that plan, and they may as well enjoy life by indulgence in sin. The Apostle Paul held no such view of the doctrine of predestination. In his apprehension, it is a doctrine suited to excite the gratitude of Christians. Exactly what I was just saying. That's what Barnes is saying. And the whole tendency and design of the doctrine, according to him, meaning Paul, is to make people holy and without blame before God in love. Exactly what I just read you from Romans 12, 1. It's as if he was, and I haven't read this in years, but he was thinking the same thing I was thinking there, is that, uh, read that again, it is a doctrine suited to excite the gratitude of Christians. I'm sorry, but Calvinism fails to do that. It's a very high and lofty thing. People that are really smart, maybe too smart for themselves, Hold on to that doctrine because, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about so you understand this. I was in Southern Evangelical Seminary and Bible College where Norman Geisler, he founded that, uh, Matthews, North Carolina, okay? Just it's in the outskirts of Charlotte. It's just south of uh, Charlotte, okay? And that's where I went. And there were two professors. I was thinking about these guys this morning. It's funny. It, it, it's relevant to what Barnes just said. 
these two professors, one of them was way smart. He was Mr. I know everything. And he was a really smart guy. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to belittle him, but he was so smart that he couldn't be around the evangelicals anymore. He just couldn't do it because he's so smart. And so he converted to Catholicism, okay? Because that's where the really brainy theologians are. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm serious. That's where all the real high-thinking theologians, doesn't matter if they're correct or not, but they're thinking all these big high thoughts, okay? There was another, my favorite professor, okay? He was a really great guy. Won't give his name. I don't want to malign him too heavily. He was a great guy, and he taught some really cool courses, okay? I took a couple of them, and he, he was also intelligent, but he wasn't that guy. He wasn't the guy that really understood the deeper things of Christian philosophy. But he was, he was intelligent. But he wanted to be like this other professor that I knew. And so he put out these big papers that were just real, real heady. And finally, he went over the Tiber as well. He became a Catholic. You know, he did. They, they both left evangelical Christianity because they're so smart. And that's what Calvinism will lead you to. I'm so smart that I can think of these doctrines that you're just not capable of fully grasping, okay? When the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible does have deep and hard things to understand. Don't get me wrong. But the Bible will not present a doctrine, a core doctrine, that is so difficult that people have to say, oh yeah, that person knows what he's talking about and I'm going to follow that person. Because that's what this professor, my, one that I like, did. He, he just followed along somebody else that was also way above everybody else Calvinism has that attitude. And so people that follow Calvinism, they become more... Tell me if I'm wrong, because you all know Calvinists. They become more superior than you. They know better than you, and they, they are not going to bow to any doctrine that says that... I, I, I just... They think. That they think, absolutely. They, they think they. They think, and that's what I'm saying. They're not, but they think they are. Okay, anyway, it's a problem when you Would get... either of these professors spell it right, or... They probably couldn't do anything physical. No, they were, they were too high in their thoughts. They, anyway, um, yeah, no, anyway, um, let's see. Well, I know somebody that had a little trouble bringing down a tree, too. Yeah. Uh, okay, we, we got we to get back to work here. Um, okay, so uh, uh, Albert Barnes, we finished that. You can take that later, please. Thank you. Um, God's plan neither directs nor chooses individual salvation apart from the giving of Christ. Okay, let me read that again because there's noise going on. I can't think. God's plan neither directs nor chooses individual salvation apart from the giving of Christ. Okay, now think about it. If God did everything before he created the world, okay, that means that he didn't need Christ to do this. Okay, think about that. Now, it does say Christ is a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But if he chose somebody before that, he could have done it without somehow. I, 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 just, I, I'm certain of that. I don't want to make a doctrine out of that that is incorrect. But I am certain that uh, if God chose you before he sent Christ to die, then he didn't need to send Christ to die. Okay, I, I could be wrong on that, but I think that's probably a correct analysis. Okay, uh, apart from the giving of Christ, which in reality is what a monergistic view of salvation implies. So I obviously felt the same thing when I wrote this before. Nor does it direct individual holiness apart from the process of sanctification, of which the individual clearly participates in. As we just read in Romans 12, I beseech you, brothers, 
This is your reasonable service. Do this. Be holy. Okay? I'll read that again so you understand. Uh, God's plan neither directs nor chooses individual salvation, which is monergistic thinking, apart from the giving of Christ, which in reality is what the monergistic view of salvation implies, nor does it direct individual holiness apart from the process of sanctification, of which the individual clearly participates. We participate in our sanctification, and we certainly participate in our salvation in the sense that we accept it. We did nothing for it. That's, you know, and people will say, well, if you're participating, then Christ didn't do everything. That's not correct. And that is, they will try to pull that over on you. So be ready for that. Jesus Christ did every single thing necessary for your salvation. There is no participation by us in the process of being saved and what is necessary for us to be saved. Everybody understand that? But there is a necessity for us to accept that process of salvation. That doesn't mean that we've done anything in the process of salvation. We have accepted the premise that this is what God has done. We're not doing anything. We're receiving what God has done. And Paul says that is necessary in Romans 10, 9, and 10. Okay, got that? Okay, so I want to make sure because they will say that if you believe, that's, you know, if you have to believe, then you're participating in your salvation. That is not true. No, but that's what I'm saying. How do they, I'm sorry. Well, no, I understand, but that is what their logic will say, okay? Um, if God chose the elect, even prior to the fall, then Christ's work loses its significance. Such ideas conflict with the entire tenor of Scripture and are based on a faulty view of the overall plan. God's plan does not negate free will. Instead, God's plan relies on free will. It anticipates it, and it expects it. Everybody got that? It relies on the free will, and that's why he gave man free will. Right at the very beginning, the very first page of man's time on earth, Genesis chapter 2, the very first page, free will is introduced. The doctrine of free will, and that is never lost throughout all the pages of scripture, not in corporate Israel, not in individual you. Free will is all the way through the Bible, a tenet that cannot be denied. Unless you're a Calvinist and you say it's not denied in any precept in any person's life except in becoming saved. It doesn't work that so, way. So I would say 99.9% of all people who come to Christ who believe do so because they know they're broken. That's no, exactly they, right. So if if if, if you don't know you're broken, it's not 99%. It's 100%. Because if you don't know you're broken... Then there's no need for Jesus. Everybody, everybody that actually, I'm talking about real salvation, every person that comes to Christ understands that sin is the problem. And that's why the gospel, somebody emailed me uh, this past week, and uh, she asked me, uh, actually it was before this, but this week she sent me what she did. She said, you know, I want to put something together, like a track, we have these over here, that uh, uh, I, I want to be able to give people something that will tell the process of salvation for them. And I said, you know what, I've had in my time, and these are great, they're fine, but when I talk to people, I used to give people all kinds of reasons why God exists, why this and why that. I would go on and on and on, and I never had anybody come to Christ. And over the years, I have gotten more and more and more direct to the point where I am absolutely certain, because this is what God's Word does, the only thing we need to do to get somebody saved is give them 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. That is it. That's God's gospel, 
And that is what saves people, and that's why we need to give them that. And we don't need to add anything. Now, if they have questions, you need to be ready with your questions. But the gospel is Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again. That is the gospel. That is it. You don't need to go any further. If you can properly explain that and how it pertains to a person's life, that is all you need. And if they don't accept that premise, then they don't accept the premise that they are a sinners and they're not broken. Yeah. That, that, yeah, that's right. And they may at some point in time. But the simpler you keep the gospel message, the simpler it will be for them to understand it and to accept it or turn it down. But it's all of the high thoughts in the world are not going to get a person any closer to Christ because God, this is God's way of transmitting his love for you. I sent my son. He died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again. If you believe that in your heart, you will be saved. That's all you need to tell them. You don't need to go any further. After that, you can talk all day long about anything you want, but give them the simple gospel, and that is what will bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. Okay. Um, and they're not professors. That's right. And they haven't gone over the Tiber. Uh, instead, God's plan, I'm going to read it again, relies on free will. It anticipates it. It expects it. And all of this is from, all, and all of this from God is, as Paul says, in love. The final two words of this verse show us the nature of God's heart toward the objects of the plan. God would create in love. God knew that man would turn away from him, but in love, he devised his plan even before that occurred, even as he determined to create. He knew every single thing that would happen all the way through the stream of time. So, you know, once again, here's another email that came in today. Uh, somebody was telling me that, uh, um, you know, talking about bad things happening in the world, and they reject God because all these bad things happen in this person's life, and I, uh, you know, it, I don't want to believe in God because of that. That's not God's fault. The very fact that you can feel the way you feel about that shows that God cares. The very fact that he came to send his son to reconcile you to him and any other person that chose that to him shows that he cares. He is loving. But he's not interfering in people's lives and saying, I'm going to protect you with a buffer so that you'll love me. He's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. The fact that you break your leg, the fact that you can go out and and drown the fact that you can do great things and climb mountains all of these things prove that god loves you they prove that he does it doesn't negate anything when things bad happen in your life it's bad and i understand that but that's not a reason to be angry at god that's a reason to be angry at the devil who introduced the sin that made us fall that god knew would happen in advance because he loves us and he wants to have a free will relationship with us okay in love he devised his plan even before that occurred even as he determined to create, man did fall. And in love, God continued with the plan of redemption for man. As a matter of fact, he introduced it right there on the page of the fall. At the same page where man fell, he says, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. And guess what? It was the serpent that did this. Okay? Man did fall, and in love, God continued with the plan of redemption for man. He chose to send Jesus. There is no other plan because the plan is based on the eternal counsel of God even before creation. There can't be another plan. If there was another plan, then it wouldn't be God. God did these things, and it means that there can only be one plan. 
We just need to be appreciative of the fact that we are a part of it. And we need to be embarrassed when we say, well, what about the Muslims over there that have never heard of Jesus? We need to be embarrassed because we didn't send somebody to tell those Muslims about Jesus. William Carey went over to India, and guess what? There's lots of Muslims in India. There have been for eons, right? He was willing to go. We need to be embarrassed that we did not take the time to fund missionaries to go and do what we're whining about. Well, what about that poor person over in Thailand that's never heard of Jesus? Well, if you'd send somebody over there to tell them about it, maybe it's your fault, right? You're over here with TVs and boats and all kinds of big things, and you're not willing to spend a little bit of money to send somebody over to Thailand to tell them about Jesus? Look at it the other way around, and when people try to pull those things on you, turn it around and put it back on them. You don't have to take that because God has done this for us, and he's given us the commission. Go and do these things. Oh, I, I'm getting fired up because the whole Calvinistic thing just does this to me. It's like tithing. Don't get me started. Okay, but listen, not this week. This week is a holy, a holy, talking about holiness, a holy people to the Lord. All right, it's about the dietary laws of Israel. We went through this in Leviticus 11. This is a not a repeat. There's a lot of neat new stuff in there. One verse, I think it was verse 13. I think it was verse 13. Wow, did that break my brain. It's real short. And man, I'm telling you what, I bet you I spent an hour just trying to get the information for you. And you're, you're not going to appreciate it. It doesn't really say anything. But I didn't want to give you the wrong information. It's just a couple of names of birds. That's all it is. And let me see if I can find it so you know when we get there. I want you to appreciate how much work this one verse was. Yes, and we'll talk about that. I don't want to get ahead on that. I don't want to give away the information on that, but that is correct. Bats, the word is oaf. Oaf is a flyer. And there's an error. I, I, I give an error from the pulpit commentary in their, their commentary that I cite in this coming uh, sermon because they make an error in thinking because the word is translated as bird, but it means a flying thing. Okay, so you'll have to catch that one. If you don't, you, it'll just go over your head. But um, uh, did I say 13? I, we're in chapter 14, and it's verse, let me see if I can find it. I think it's verse 13. Here it is, 13. The red kite, the falcon, and the kite after their kinds. I'm telling you what, I bet you I spent over an hour on those, those few words right there, because not because it makes any difference to you at all, but because I don't want to be wrong, and I want to present people with something that... They can go back later and say, ah, I get this, if they ever want to research that. It was a lot of work, those few words. Anyway, um, uh, okay, we'll go on. Um, uh, in love, all of this is from God in love. He chooses to send Jesus. There's no other plan. I read that. Okay, um, uh, I'm going to read the last sentence one more time. Therefore, the use of the words chose us indicates all those who would be receptive to the plan executed in love which was devised in love by God, who is love. Okay? Everybody got that? This isn't something that God mandated on people to be saved. And I was, I, I, that brought me back to what I was saying about us. Don't let people accuse you or your God of doing wrong because bad things happen in their lives or because somebody over in Thailand isn't being saved. You turn that around on them and you say, this is your fault because you're living apart from God, and he's asking those people to be saved, and you're arguing against the only chance of them being saved because you don't want to believe in him. Throw it back on them. Let them take the responsibility. Don't let people push you as a Christian around because you are defending the God of the universe, okay? They are tearing him down by saying those things, and you have a right to defend it and put it right back on them. 
Okay, life application. You may choose to accept this analysis of the doctrine of election, or you may reject it. That is your choice. The important point is that as long as you choose to receive Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you do not, you will not be saved. Choose wisely. Okay, I always use the term choose wisely. I say that a lot, and the reason why is because it's from uh, uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Uh, not the Temple of Doom, the uh, Last Crusade, when he's got all the cups, and one of them will save, and any other you'll die, and he says, choose wisely. And then after the guy drinks it and he blows apart, he says, he chose poorly. <laughs> okay, we're in 1-5. Be predestined, predestined, be adopted as his son, through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. Okay, it's close, but I'll read it again. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Okay, this is predestination. The previous verse was too, but this one is. Um, are we going to be able to get this done today? Yes, we're going to get this verse done. Okay, as this is one long continued thought from the previous verse, let us review the last verse together with this one. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and uh, holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Okay, I just read that slower than I normally do. I got a letter from a friend of mine. She says, I know you're always asking us to watch your sermons, but I don't because you speak too fast. Do I speak too fast during the sermons? Uh, you know, and I wouldn't know. And the reason why I wouldn't know is because I, when I go home, I edit the videos. They have to be edited before they get published, okay? And I put them on 1.5 or two times their regular speed. So I go through and I listen to things all day long. I don't have time to listen to these videos people send. So if you send me a video, I'm going to put it on two times speed. And it's a five-minute video and I respond after two and a half minutes. It's because I had it on double speed. It's not that I just didn't listen to the video. If I respond saying I listened to it or I've got it on now, I do. But um, uh, I, I listen to everything really fast. So I wouldn't know if I speak too fast or not. You, I do? I speak too fast? No. Oh. I, I do the same oh, thing. Oh, okay. People are always like, how do you? I mean, you train your ears. You train your ears to, to drink it. Okay, so I'm not going too fast in the sermons. I'm glad. And that's okay. I, you know, she wants them slower. And, and I wish they had. I would tell her, you know, just... If they had a slower thing, like uh, instead of, they do? Oh, well, then I'll tell her to play the half. What? Or written. Yeah, well, some people just don't want to read. Anyway, if they really have a half, I've never gone. Okay, well, then I will tell her. One and a half, two. Okay, I will tell her to uh, to uh, play them slower if she wants to listen to them. Because she says they're good sermons. She just, she, it's too much, she says. Um, it might help if she saw it visually uh, uh, yeah. while she listened to it auditorily because then she can process okay. it at a better yeah. rate. Okay, I'll, I'll check with her and see what she says. Okay, Paul said that God chose us in the previous verse, and now he quotes that this choice includes having predestined us to adoption as sons. The question is, what exactly does the predestination mean? When did it occur? And by what means? There are several possibilities, three of which should be considered. Before doing so, it needs to be understood that God does not think 
either syllogistically, meaning he does not make deductions based on facts, nor does he think dicursively, meaning going from thought to thought in a random manner as we often do. Okay, syllogism is um, that chair or that thing over there is shaped like an L. It's got four legs. It's got pads on the front and the back. That thing is a chair. That's syllogistic thinking. I'm making a deduction based on observation. Okay, dicursive thinking is Jim's shoes are a little bit dirty today. He's going to mar the carpet and uh, those hymnals are getting old and raggedy. I need to get that squared away. And that's dicursive thinking. I'm just looking around and thinking. Okay, God doesn't do either of those. There is no progression in God. Okay, God knows everything immediately and intuitively. That means from before he created anything, he knew everything that ever will be forever. All of the knowledge of all of everything in the material universe, in the spiritual realm, everything he knows immediately. He knew it before he created it. Everything. Okay? Those and other such types of thinking imply the passage of time. He is outside of time, and therefore he has no such thoughts in his head. Okay? And God doesn't have a head, by the way. As God doesn't think through things through in a pattern, our possibilities are only a reference for us to consider. What I'm going to, in other words, when I talk about God's predestination or when John Calvin does, we're talking about it from our perspective. What would it be like in a logical order if God thought? Everybody got that? Okay. They do not reflect the actual way that God predestined us, but they are laid out in a sequence because everything that pertains to our predestination has occurred in time. God developed everything for our benefit. He didn't do it for his benefit, okay? In the process of redemptive history, it is all going on in a sequence of events. Understanding this, options we will look at are, one, God predestined those for salvation from a point in time, even before the fall of man. God, in essence, says, I will choose these people and none other. This is the duck thing that I've done on the board a couple times. All right. There is no act of the will on the part of the elect, but God willed them for salvation or for condemnation even before the fall. If this is so, then it means that God actually created all others for destruction as a part of his active plan. I'm going to create everything. I'm going to create these people to be saved. Everything else I'm going to destroy. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. In this view, he is saying, I have created some to go to hell. This crazy, unbiblical view is termed hyper-Calvinism. Two, God predestined those for salvation from a point after the fall of man, but before the point in time when he determined to correct the fall of man by sending Jesus. There is no act of the will on the part of the elect, but God willed each for salvation or condemnation after the fall, before he decided to send Jesus, but after the fall, okay? There is no act of the will on the part of the elect, but God willed each for salvation or condemnation after the fall. He then decided, oh, I guess I'm going to send Jesus for those he chose. If this is so, then God selected those he chose for salvation and simply left all the others out of his plan. He ignored their fallen state and said, they can go to hell. They are not a part of my redemptive plan. He's not creating them for hell. He's saying they can go to hell. And I'm not saying that the way we would say it. I'm saying that that's the way his mind would think. He doesn't care, okay? 
This is unscriptural. This view falls under the general teachings of modern Calvinism. Three, God predestined those for salvation after both the fall and the plan to fix the fall. This would mean that he says, I know that this would happen, and I am going to fix this problem by sending Jesus. Anyone who calls on him will be saved. My plan of redemption is one of choosing those who are willing to believe by faith that I am a rewarder of those who diligently seek me. In this is seen the truth of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes says nothing about regeneration, okay, in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He saw there was a problem, resolved to fix the problem, and sent Jesus on his mission to fix the problem, okay? The contents of scripture clearly lay out that God allows free will in man. As this is so, the predestination of man falls into the third category. God predestined us as adoption, or I'm sorry, to adoption as sons. That's Paul's words. He predestined us to adoption as sons through a plan which reveals his love for his creatures and yet an allowance for those creatures to willingly accept or reject him is granted. And this is done by, as Paul says, by Jesus Christ and to himself. It is through the work of Jesus Christ that God has accomplished his work of predestination. It is the means by which man can and must be saved. As this is so, then it can only be, it can be the only means by which this may come about. God has no other plan because God is God. As Tom here wears his shirt to the projects from time to time, it says in very big letters, no plan B. There is not another way. That is it. There is no plan B in God. There is one plan and that is it. We don't even need to call it plan A because it's just the plan. Okay. Thus, the entire plan is according to the good pleasure of his will. This, doesn't, this term doesn't indicate merely a sense of friendly feeling, but rather that it is what is pleasing to him. As has already been noted above from Hebrews 11, verse 6, but which will be cited in its entirety, it is by faith, which it is, yes, it is faith by which, I better read that again, entirety, it is faith which is pleasing to God. The entire body of scripture points to this in Hebrews 11:6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, okay? You must seek him. If you don't seek him, you're not going to be rewarded. What kind of nutty thinking would state that this faith is not of free will? Why would it please God to make a being that was forced to believe that he existed in order to be saved? Why would God do that? All right, where am I? Okay, this goes here. That is as nutty as a tennis puck. Rather, God installed in man free will. He also set the parameters by which that free will would be pleasing to him. When the free will is in accord with those parameters, God is pleased with that. This is the proper understanding of what God has done within the stream of time in which we exist. Again, God isn't thinking this way. This is what God thought all at once, forever, in all of 
outside of time. Whatever the eternal state is, it is in his mind. He simply created so that this could happen in a sequence, okay? But that's not how God thinks. He doesn't think like that, okay? This is the proper understanding of what God has done within the stream of time in which we exist. Again, as noted above, though, God doesn't actually think in the way that is presented. But his thoughts are revealed to us in one of those ways as the stream of time which he created unfolds. Life application. Where is God glorified in creating automatons that simply do what he wills? Other than reveling in something that he didn't even need to create in order to get exactly the same effect as if he did. He is not so glorified in any way. Rather, in creating free-willed sentient beings who willingly accept his offer of Jesus Christ, he is truly glorified. From that acceptance, he can then fellowship with those beings redeemed by the blood of his Son for all eternity. Yes? The predestination is for believers. What do you think of that? Predestined. Well... It only applies to believers. Exactly. Yeah, it only applies. But yes, I mean, you could say that, but it, it, it's very clear that God predestined. People say, well, you don't believe in predestination. It says it right there in the Bible. Right. It's what does that mean? And it is applied to believers. It's the same thing as anything else. You have potential predestination and you have actual predestination. God predestined, actually, Charlie Garrett will or will not be saved when he believes. So there was an old saying that I always thought let it go if it, if it doesn't come back it was never, never yours if it does it's yours forever so it's, that's right it's it's really the love story of god of god doing exactly that he let us go and he says if you come back we'll have fellowship so, yep we we got to finish we are right on time right now Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to uh, share in your word. And I would certainly hope that what was presented today is correct. I get arrogant in my attitude towards Calvinists because I do not believe that they are correct. And if I'm wrong, then I am the one that will stand before you and be judged for that. But as I teach, I would not teach something I did not believe. And I do not believe that you force us into a relationship with you but rather that you have given us the chance to come to you in love and to say thank you for what you've done. And Lord, that being the case and that you sent your son Jesus for us and to pay for our sin debt, we are so grateful. And so we would ask that you would remind us of that from time to time so that we don't forget and turn our, the grace given to us into license, but rather to stand firm on holiness and being a holy people to the Lord in what that means in the context of New Testament, New Covenant theology, that Christ shed his blood for us, and we are grateful for that. Help us to remember that lesson. And Lord, we love you. We do love you so much. You are great. You are glorious. You are God. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. Chosen but free. Chosen but free. That's the Norman Geisler book. I'm glad you said that. Okay, I'm going to put this on break. And... Take that